if you got a Bible, you can go ahead and start finding First John chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be walking through the book of First John for about nine weeks. And this is a great time in the life of our church for you to get to read ahead and think and wrestle. Um, those of you that are followers of Jesus, this is a great time for you to come prayed up, knowing what we're going to talk about. We're going to leave off with one verse and pick up with the next verse every single week. And for those of you that are asking questions about who Jesus is, you're wrestling with your faith, maybe you're coming back to church. This is going to be a great series for you to be introduced to the heart of Christianity. What is Christianity really about? It's about a life formed by the love of God in Christ Jesus. So last week we left off with verse four. Today, we're going to pick up with verse five. And I want to start this thing off with a bit of a confession. Uh, Growing up, I loved choose your own adventure books. Any other children of the seventies and eighties that are with me in that? I love choose your own adventure books. Uh, One of my favorites was you are a shark. True title. I can prove it. Go ahead and throw that up on the screen. This is an excellent book. This is, this is a classic of Western civilization. You are a shark, to which I said as a 10-year-old kid, I am a shark. I will read that book because it sounds awesome. And not only does it have a great cover, but the concept is incredible. You're the star of the story. I like that. I like that. And I like the idea of being able to choose from 14 possible endings. 14. Those are a lot of different endings. I remember as a little kid, I loved these books, man. My mom would get me these. We, we would stockpile choose your own adventure books and I would read these books and then something started to happen as I got a little older, right? I started to realize these are terrible books. <laughs> these are horrible books. Uh, not only are the 14 endings always the same endings, no matter what you choose, and not only are those endings getting a little stale over time, but in addition to all that, they're just poorly written stories, right? No offense, if you wrote one of these books, they're just poorly written. They're not that great. They're not that great. Now, I bring that up because I think that there's something that's happening in our culture that's not really a new thing. It's really a really old thing that we're actually going varsity in as Americans today. I think there's this thing in our culture where the choose your own adventure idea actually is the way that we approach everything in life, right? We want to be the center of our story. And not only do we want to be the center of our story, we actually want to be the highest authority of our own story, meaning we want to be able to call balls and strikes and discern what is good and what is true, not based on any external factors, but simply based on our feelings, whims, and choices. We want to live in the center of our choose-your-own-adventure story. We want to act like we have the capacity to discern what is ultimate, what is most meaningful, what is right, what is wrong. We put ourselves squarely in the space as author of our own story. And when we do that, something happens over time. We don't tell a better story like choose your own adventure books. We still end up with the same stale 14 different endings. And instead of it being a story that liberates us, when we take that role of God of our own lives, it actually leads to a massive amount of anxiety and not to a deeper life, to a really flat life. Things get brittle. Things get stale. 
in this particular cultural moment, if we could be honest, many of us feel like life is spinning. Like we're trying to orchestrate our story. We're trying to hold our stories together. We're acting as if we know the end from the beginning of our story and that we have the say and the control to get where we wanna go. And in the midst of all of that, it feels like our love relationships are spinning and work is spinning and culture spinning and family spinning. And it's a bit terrifying. Our attempts to define ultimate meaning for our lives and ultimate goodness for our lives and and our attempts to try to define that as our own authors, what's happened is we've ended up as some of the most anxious, stressed out people in the history of the world. (laughs) David Foster Wallace is one of my writers, my favorite writers, um, wrote some really brilliant stuff about culture and life and wasn't a follower of Jesus, but he could articulate what it's like to be a human being that's trying to act as if we've got the capacity to know ultimate meaning and to define it as ourselves. In an interview, David Foster Wallace said this, for me, the last few years of the postmodern era have seemed a bit like the way you feel when you're in high school and your parents go on a trip and you throw a party. You get all your friends over and you throw this wild, disgusting, fabulous party. For a while, it's great, free and freeing. Parental authority is gone and overthrown. A cat's away, let's play Dionysian revel. But then time passes and the party gets louder and louder and you run out of drugs. And nobody's got any money for more drugs and things get broken and spilled and there's a cigarette burn on the couch and you're the host and it's your house too. And you gradually start wishing that your parents would come back and restore some blanking order to the house. It's not a perfect analogy, but the sense I get of my generation of writers and intellectuals or whatever is that it's like 3 a.m. and the couch has several burn holes. Somebody's thrown up in the umbrella stand and we're wishing the revel would end. We're kind of wishing some parents would come back. And of course, we're uneasy about the fact that we wish they'd come back. I mean, what's wrong with us? Is there something about authority and limits that we actually need? And then the uneasiest feeling of all, as we start to gradually realize that the parents, in fact, aren't ever coming back, which means we're going to have to be the parents. Choose your own adventure, set your own limits, define what's real for you, define what's ultimate for you, be the author, get the ending of your life that you want based on your own terms. All that sounds great until you try to step into that script And you start to realize that you don't have broad enough shoulders to define ultimate meaning. No, this is not a new thing. It's not just like postmodern people came up with the idea of being our own authorities. This is a really old thing. This is a really human thing that goes back to the very beginning of humanity. In fact, in one of the really old books of the Bible, Judges, there's this line that sums it up. Judges 17, six, it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And if you read the story of Judges, like that's pretty much an R-rated book in the Bible. It doesn't result in more beauty in people's lives. Everyone doing what is right in our own eyes actually led to massive amounts of tyranny 
And not just external tyranny, right? Like it's not just that dictators and tyrants fill the vacuum that's left when we decide that God is dead. It's that the internal tyrant of self starts to drive us. And that internal tyrant of self says things like, everything's okay, you're doing great. All the while the inside, we're like, no, I'm not doing great. If I could be honest, I feel like I'm dying. This is not working. My choose your own adventure is not working out the way I want it to work out. See, when when there is no ultimate reality, if there is no ultimate truth, if there is no ultimate goodness, then what happens is the transcendent, the biggest, most beautiful, that's supposed to capture your soul and give you a grid for how to navigate this world, it gets replaced by individual experiences And instead of being more free, we're actually more enslaved. In 1882, Nietzsche wrote the famous words, God is dead. God is dead. Describing modern man, that we don't need God. God's dead. We're done with God. We don't want ultimate authority. We'll be our own authority. Instead of that leading to more beautiful lives, that choose your own adventure ending number 14 has actually led to a lot of human devastation few years after Nietzsche wrote those words in 1893, a Norwegian artist named Edvard Munch painted a series of paintings called The Scream. Uh, If you're like me, you probably thought that Picasso painted it. Nope. Munch painted it. And, And here's what he's painting. It's actually pretty profound and it's connected to what Nietzsche said. God is dead. What's the result of that? A deeper life, a better life, more freedom. Actually, the result of that is unbelievable anxiety. In this painting, if you look at it, it's, it's this tortured soul turning away from what used to be symbols of God's transcendence, sunsets and oceans and nature. If God is ultimate and real, then creation bears his fingerprints. And when you stand outside and look up at a starry night, you're amazed at the bigness of God and you're aware of your smallness. If God is dead, then these are just random, meaningless things out there that carry no way and point to nothing. So this person in the painting is turning from the sunset. He's turning from the ocean. He's turning away from community in isolation. He's by himself. And what's coming out of his soul is the terrifying scream that is the result of trying to be ultimate authority. If God is alive, however... If God is real, if, if God is alive and if God is real, then what that means is there's an author to the story, capital S story, and there's an author to your story, lowercase s story, and that author has the authority and the capacity to exercise judgment as to what is good and what is beautiful and what is not. Pastor John, the old apostle in his 90s, is writing to a group of Christians that are being influenced by some false teachers. And the false teachers are telling these disciples of Jesus that the answers to life are not found in Christ and in his work on the cross. They're found in the inner light that you carry. 
Look inside and you'll be actualized to look inside and you can find the secret knowledge of what's true and beautiful and good. Um, You're the answer to your problems, not Jesus and his cross and his resurrection. And so old pastor John, he's writing to these Christians to remind them of a really big problem and an even bigger solution. And I'll admit for the next couple of minutes, it's about to get heavy in here. I'll give you the warning. It's, it's gonna be weighty because the problem that Pastor John, the beloved apostle wants to unpack is a universal problem. It's a human problem. It's not just a first century problem. It's not just a middle-class problem. It's not a problem that affects one gender. It's a universal problem. And it's a problem that's so big, you should look at it and stand under the weight of it. And it should sober you a little bit. First John chapter one, verse five, the problem in the solution. Look what John says. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter two, verse one, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There's a really big problem in this text And the really big problem starts with an understanding of who God is. John writes in verse five, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Here's what John's doing. He's reaching back through the history of God's revealing of himself to humanity to use this picture of God, this metaphor for God, that God is light to unpack two things that are ultimate and big. Here's the two things John wants his people to get when he says God is light. First of all, God being light means that he is ultimate reality or truth itself. He is ultimate reality or truth itself. Secondly, God being light means he is ultimate goodness or perfect righteousness. So here's what John's saying. Um, Reality is not something that we all get to craft and make our own version of. Reality starts with God who has no beginning and no end, who is in himself light, truth. And righteousness or goodness, purity is not something that we get to decide or craft like we're doing a shop project at home on a classic car, bolting on whatever parts we want to bolt on. Truth, goodness, righteousness is something that is defined by the very nature of God. And it's such a big deal that in him, there is no darkness. So here's what John's saying. There are no contradictions in the integrity of God. 
There are no places where his goodness is contradicted by a little bit of badness. There are no places in God where there's just a little bit of darkness instead of ultimate truth. There are no places where he's folded in against himself. There are no cracks in his goodness. There are no contradictions in his trueness. He is all truth, no deception. He's all righteousness, no evil. And that's not really the problem, (laughs) but that leads to the problem. John framed up the problem elsewhere when he wrote the gospel of John. He said this, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. See, what John is framing for these people is that the problem is not in who God is, ultimate reality, ultimate righteousness. The problem is that something has so profoundly gone wrong with our humanity that we are actually born in darkness and darkness is not just external to us. Darkness is something we carry in our very souls. And that darkness shows up with three big lies. Three big lies. Lie number one, we lie to one another. Verse six, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Here's here's what he's saying, I think. I think what he's saying here is there's a way in which religious people can claim to be connected to God who is light, ultimate truth, ultimate righteousness. There's a way in which religious people can claim to have a relationship with God who is light and his ultimate truth and ultimate righteousness not actually shape and form the way in which those people live, not actually affect their relationships or what they see as beautiful or what they desire. There's a way in which to say, hey, yeah, you know, I'm cool with God and God's cool with me. I've got God because I go to church or I've got God because I was born in the Midwest or I've got God because you know what? I've had some religious experiences in the past And what John is saying, to claim to have a relationship with God and to continue on in darkness, meaning having a life whose trajectory is shaped by being bent against his goodness and his truth is actually a way in which we deceive people around us and we play games with each other. The religious version of this is like, yeah, oh yeah, I love God. I'm a Christian. I know God. And yet, Pride and greed and hate and unforgiveness are actually the definitive, most present realities in our life. There's a way in which to say, yeah, I'm cool with God. I've got God. God's got me. I've had religious experiences. And to not have our desires formed and shaped by what God says is ultimately true and beautiful and by what God says is ultimately right and good. Now, John's not saying that it's possible to be a Christian and never sin. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is there's a contradiction in saying you have a relationship with God who is light and living a life where that light is being rejected and rebuffed at every turn. Now, I think it's possible to be a non-Christian and do this too. I think it's possible to have a non-religious version of lying to others when we claim to know truth and we claim to know goodness, but we don't know that ultimate truth and goodness isn't a what, but a who. When we claim to be people that can define what is true and good and even be really proud of those claims, 
And people are really proud of their claims as to what's true and good, aren't we? Just read Twitter for about 10 minutes. Your eyes will start bleeding with the assumptions human beings make about having cornered the market on what's true and good. It's possible, it's possible to claim, hey, I know what's true and good. I know what's ultimate and not even have a relationship with the one that is ultimate, the one that defines truth and goodness. Therefore, what are you basing your claims on? Well, again, choose your own adventure. It's just you. It's just you. This is a way we lie to people. We do it in church. We do it in the marketplace. Yeah, I'm cool with God. God's cool with me. But darkness is the defining reality of the way in which we live. Now, there's another way we lie. And this one's even more tragic, perhaps. We lie to ourselves. We lie to ourselves. Look at verse eight. If we say we have no sin, singular, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Uh, Here's what he's saying. The second way we lie because the darkness is in us is not to others, but it's a lie that we tell ourselves when we deny that our nature is shaped by S-I-N. Here's what John's saying. Um, you're, not, you're not a sinner because you occasionally choose to sin. What John is framing up here by using the singular of sin is he's saying, hey, you choose to sin because your nature actually carries sin in its very fiber. There's something that's gone wrong in the heart of humanity And that thing that's gone wrong is called sin. And when we deny that we have a nature that needs to be redeemed and rescued, we're tricking ourselves. And we do this all the time. Um, Every time we say, I can clean myself up, we're lying to ourselves. I got this. I can manage this. Every time we say, sure, I sometimes blank, fill in favorite addiction, favorite way to harm others, favorite way to worship self and not God. Um, Sure, I sometimes blank, but I'm a good guy. Yeah, okay, sure, I do those things, but basically I'm a good dude. Or we say, if you were to weigh the good of my life and weigh the bad of my life, the good outweighs the bad. John's saying, hey man, we we lie to ourselves when we deny that something has gone wrong in our souls and our hearts. And that thing that's gone wrong leads to choices, but it's not the result of your choices. It's actually part of who we are. Every time we say, I'm better than a lot of people I know, which is like a favorite pastime here in the Midwest, right? We justify ourselves by comparison. I'm not Hitler. It's like, oh man, be proud of that. You're, you're crushing it, buddy. Congrats on not being Hitler. You're doing great. See, all of those ways of lying are not ways that we try to trick other people. They're ways we try to trick ourselves into thinking that we're okay and we don't need to be rescued. We lie to ourselves. We lie to ourselves. And it's not, it's not walking around with like, this perceived puritanical negativity to just have a right assessment of yourself. Ah, man, I don't want to be one of those guys that says I've got a sin nature. No, you don't want to be one of those. You want to lie to yourself. 
You wanna pretend that you're just a product of your choices. You wanna pretend that you're the author of your choose your own adventure. The problem is sin is hardwired into you and it was hardwired into you when you were born. And if something is not done with that S-I-N, there's gonna be no hope of you standing in the light of a God who's ultimate truth and ultimate righteousness. Now, the third way that that darkness comes out is not only do we lie to others and lie to ourselves, but we actually call God a liar. We call God a liar. Look at verse 10. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, that seems a little shocking. I I don't even know a ton of non-Christian friends that would just come out and say, yeah, God's a liar. They would say, I mean, I don't believe in God or I think that God's misrepresented or I'm trying to wrestle through who might God be and I don't really know. I don't know a lot of people that would come out and say, yep, there's a God and he's a liar. But here's what John's saying. If we say our morality is enough, you're actually saying God's a liar because God says that your best effort at morality is never enough. If we say, our religious activities are enough. Like, yeah, I'm cool with God. I go to church. It's great. I'm a Methodist. My mom and dad raised me Methodist. I'm a Baptist. My mom and dad raised me Baptist. If we define our rightness with God based on religion, not based on the works of Jesus, we're actually calling God a liar because God says your best efforts at righteousness are like, filthy, rotten trash in a waste bin that nobody would want to touch without gloves. That's your best effort at trying to stack up to God's standards. If we say our lives are fine, we actually are calling God a liar. And not many of us can pull off saying our lives are fine all the time. Eventually how just not fine our internal lives are. Eventually that always catches up with everybody. And you've got to have some moments of just sober realization. Like, okay, I'm not okay. I'm freaking out. But we're pretty good at, for long stretches saying, yeah, I'm cool. I actually don't think I need a savior. I'm doing well. That's calling God a liar. So this is a big problem, right? This is a big problem. God is light in him is no darkness, but there's darkness in us. And it's led to us pretending and playing games with other human beings And it's led to us deceiving ourselves into thinking that we're better off than what we are. And it's led to us calling God a liar by rejecting his offer of grace. And I want to take just a second to just show you how big a problem this really is. Because I think most of my friends that aren't Christians would say, hey, if there is a God, I would want him to oppose grotesque evil, right? Like most of my friends that are atheist, agnostic, walked away from church, Uh, They may not believe in God, but if we get in a conversation about justice in the world, it's like, yeah, if there's a God, I would hope that he would be opposed to genocide. If there's a God, I I would hope that he would be opposed to the ways in which we've exterminated whole people groups based on greed and pride. If there is a God, I, I would hope he would be opposed to the sex slave industry that thrives in all kinds of, pockets of the world, including OKC. If there is a God, I would want him to be against child abuse. I'd want him to be against rape. I'd want him to be against violent crime. We say, if there is a God, I want him to be good enough to oppose grotesque evil. But the problem with saying that, friends, 
is that evil is not just something out there. Evil's also something that's in here. The seed that we carry in our heart known as lust, when grown up to a full grown tree, looks like sex trafficking. But can we just admit, I got that seed in me. The seed that you could call pride, not being humble before God and humble before others and not valuing others as as valuable as you, that seed of pride when grown up into the full grown tree looks like apartheid in South Africa. It looks like slavery in the United States. That little seed of greed that is in my heart and in your heart when left to grow up and thrive and bear fruit looks like all kinds of the devastations that one country will impose on another country to take resources and protect their interests. So we want God to oppose evil in grotesque forms, but we don't want to admit that if God is light and in him is no darkness, his opposition to evil has to include an opposition to part of the very nature of who we are as human beings. And that's a problem. What do you do with that? What do you do if there is a God and he's righteous and there is a God and he's ultimate reality and the way in which we've lived and what we love and what we've done with our lives are bent against him. What do you do with the fact that he is committed to opposing evil and evil is in you and evil is in me. One of the great tragedies of our cultural moment is to think that the greatest problems in the world are all problems that we can solve. Poverty, lack of education, environmental catastrophe, those are all big problems. And I want people in our church to care about those problems and to engage those problems. But every problem that we can throw money at and thinking at, all of the human problems on this planet pale in comparison to the ultimate problem, which is a sin problem. Because there's a God that made you and he's a just God, he's a holy God and he's opposed to evil and evil is in my heart. So what's going to happen when I meet that God? It's not going to be a beautiful moment if something doesn't happen. It's not going to be, it's not going to be skipping through the, the daisies when I get to meet that holy, perfect God that's described in scripture as like an all-consuming fire of righteousness. That's not going to be a good day for me when I meet him and, and the secrets of my heart are exposed. That's not going to, that's not going to go well for me. That's the problem. And it leads us to the very heart of what it is to be a Christian. The heart of what it is to be a Christian is the big solution that God came up with for that really big problem. Look at chapter two, verse one. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. In these two verses, 
John the beloved, the old apostle, the pastor of these people is including the very heart and heartbeat of what it is to be a Christian. The very crown jewel of Christianity. He's writing about this P word that we don't use very much, propitiation. That word that many of us can't define because it's weird. We don't hear it in our culture. We don't use it in our culture. That's a word that helps explain the very heart of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's a word that defines the atonement. Now, I'm gonna explain what it means to the best of my ability, but I wanna start by acknowledging that there are a lot of people, current theologians and leaders in the church and folks teaching seminary that reject propitiation as part of the Christian faith because they see it as a pagan idea. The idea that um, there's angry gods and to get those gods to be favorable or propitious towards us, we have to bribe those gods with sacrifices. So if you were an ancient and you were worried about the health of your kids, you would offer a little bit of grain or a little bit of your beer or a little bit of your wine or maybe slaughter some of your animals in hopes that you could pay off the angry deities that were in the surrounding region around you so that your life could go well. Now, I just want to say, that's not Christian propitiation. That is not what happens on the cross. That's not why Jesus dies It's very different. It's different for two massive reasons that'll change your life if you get them. It's different, number one, because the wrath of God is different than the wrath of all the gods. God who is light and in him is no darkness is not defined in scripture as first and foremost being wrath. He's described as what? He's described as love. And because he is a God of love, his wrath is the outworking of that love in consistent and in just opposition to evil in all of its forms. God is not a God that has wrath because he's capricious or grumpy. He's not like a drunk stepdad and you don't know what you're gonna get when he gets home from work. He's not emotionally unstable. The wrath of God is the consistent good overflow of his opposition to evil because he is light. His wrath is not random. His wrath is consistent and it's good and it's right and it's pure. He is committed to opposing everything that unmakes what's beautiful. Now, the second reason that propitiation is different than pagan views is not only is the wrath of God different, he's not a grumpy, crazy God that we got to bribe, but secondly, the source of the sacrifice is totally different. In pagan propitiation, in our superstitions, we would sacrifice a chicken and we would pay for the chicken. We would kill the chicken that was our chicken we would provide that bribe in hopes that the gods would say, all right, I'll get off your back for a little while. In Christian propitiation, God himself is the source and the sacrifice. God himself is the one that provides the sacrifice and that is the sacrifice. 
Christian propitiation is not you trying to bribe God to get on your good side. It's not you trying to come up with your resources and pooling them together to try to make God not mad at you. Christian propitiation is that God in the greatest act of love and mercy that the universe will ever know, that heaven will ever know, he says, I've got to do something because if I don't act, the only thing I can give these people that I created is my wrath. I've got to take it upon myself to make it possible for them to be my friends, my family. John Stott was a great old pastor in London. He wrote this. It would be hard to exaggerate the difference between the pagan and the Christian views of propitiation. In the pagan perspective, human beings try to placate their bad-tempered deities with their own paltry offerings. According to the Christian revelation, God's own great love propitiated his own holy wrath through the gift of his own dear son who took our place, bore our sin, died our death. Thus God himself gave himself to save us from himself. (laughs) Big problem. God is light in him is no darkness at all. We were born in the darkness and darkness is in us. Bigger solution. God sends his son Jesus, not as an act of cosmic child abuse, but as collaboration between the persons of the Godhead in an act of outrageous kindness. He sends his son Jesus who willingly comes out of love for the father and love for us to bear the punishment that we deserve for our wrath. That's propitiation. And the result of trusting in Jesus is crazy. It's weird. It's not what we would think and it's not what we deserve. Trusting in Jesus means that when you put your faith in Jesus, his sacrifice for you is so complete and total. What the father has in his heart towards you is not, it's not only not wrath, it's not even disappointment. What the father has in his heart towards you as one who's in Christ is unending, unshakable, never changing, complete, perfect love, not for the future version of you, but for you today as you struggle through this life. It's it's the best news, man. It's not news that says do more, try harder. It's news that says it's finished in Jesus. And because of Christian propitiation. John says these things in these verses because of Jesus, we can learn to walk in the light. God's for you, not against you. He loves you, which means we can repent of sin. We can fight against sin. We we don't have to let sin own us. Sin has been defeated by Jesus, though it's present in us. It doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be the rudder that steers our lives. The glory of God in Christ can be the rudder that steers our lives. We can have fellowship with one another because of the propitiation of Jesus. You don't have to play games with other people. Let me tell you something. God has already fully outed you as a hot mess. So you don't have to do image management. You don't have to play games. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to fake it. God's already outed you. He's like, you're such a mess. I have to send my son to die in your place. That's how much a mess you are. We can have fellowship with each other. We can repent and be honest. Because of the propitiation of Jesus, his blood cleanses us from our sins, past, present, and future. Because of propitiation, we can confess our sins and be forgiven instead of hiding in shame. Because he is our propitiation, 
when we do sin, and we will, we have an eternal advocate representing us before the Father. And here's what's great. He's the propitiation not only for our sins, church, Christians, but he's a propitiation for the sins of the whole world, meaning there's no sin that's so big, there's no person that's so far gone that they're beyond the reach of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Which means nothing you've done, nothing you've done disqualifies you from receiving this gift. There's no human being alive whose sins are so egregious that the blood of Jesus is not mightier. It's crazy news.